Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Welcome back to the Good Fight Radio Show. I'm your host, Chad Davidson of Good Fight Ministries. And with me, as always, is the president and founder of Good Fight Ministries and pastor of Blessed Hope Chapel in Simi Valley, California, Pastor Joe Schimmel. How are we doing today? Very blessed, brother. Well, in this episode, we are dealing with somewhat of a, I guess we've been going through a little bit of a series here, not just off and on. And one of the things we like to do is address those issues that may, people may come up with reading scripture and say, wait a second, I'm not really understanding this. And we call them apparent contradictions. And so this is one of those cases where, hey, does the Bible contradict it itself? It, are these verses, when we're going to put them alongside each other, are they contradicting themselves? And this is important for the biblical doctrine of inerrancy. This is important when it comes to you sharing the gospel on the streets, because something we hear all the time from people, and most of them have never read the Bible, but they heard it from someone else and heard it from someone else. And next thing you know, the parrot comes out and they say, the Bible's full of contradictions. And then we say, well, can you find them? Well, this is one that if somebody Throughout there, we want to make sure that if you're somebody listening to the Good Fight Radio Show, you're somebody sharing the gospel on the streets or with your coworker, with your family, or if you're just saying, hey, I'm having a tough time understanding this, we want to be able to answer that. So specifically, the one we're going to be answering today is whether or not Jesus lied, which we know he didn't, but whether, I don't even like saying it, but uh, whether or not he was wrong when he said the words in Luke 22, verses 16 through 18, and I will read them. And this is at... The we I guess it would be the Passover service, right? The, the first mm -hmm. communion that we are given in Jesus Christ before he is taken and then crucified and dies and then raises again on our behalf for our sins. And this is what it says. For I say to you, I shall not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This is Luke 22, 16 through 18. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Now, the place where we might find where someone would say, we call it an apparent contradiction, but somebody would say, hey, here's a, a biblical contradiction because when Jesus was on the cross, you can go to John chapter 19, verses 20 through 28 through 30. You can go to Matthew 27, 47 and 48. And both times it shows that Jesus was given wine when he was on the cross. So, Joe, with all of that, how do we answer this apparent contradiction? No, and it's a great question. And as believers, uh, the skeptics aside, we want to understand Scripture and, and what's Amen. being said there. But uh, certainly this is one of the apparent contradictions, discrepancies that skeptics like to use. Uh, but when you take a closer look and you really examine it, you say, no, oh, there's not a contradiction there. And that's the way it is with every place in Scripture that they try to find a contradiction. Uh, there's some things that are hard to understand than others, obviously. But it's interesting because uh, he did say in Luke 22, you know, uh, which you had just referenced, uh, that he wouldn't drink it again with them until, you know, the, the kingdom, the inauguration of the kingdom. But it's interesting, Jesus was actually offered wine more than once uh, in regard to his crucifixion. And 
it's interesting because the first time he's offered it, he declines it. And that's in uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 22. The Gospel of Mark describes uh, how Jesus had to endure the crucifixion, and they were trying to basically give him an anesthetic. And wine was used as an anesthetic at that time. For those who would drink enough of it, they would be able to, it would dull their senses, you know. They wouldn't be, you know, uh, while they're impaled on the cross, they wouldn't have quite as much pain uh, and acted as a sedative as well. But in 1522 and following, we read, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide uh, what each would or should take. And so he's fulfilling scriptures, Psalm 22, in regard to uh, in the, the, the you know garments being divided amongst them. Yeah. Now, we know from Proverbs chapter 31, round verses 6 or 7, where it says, give wine to those who are perishing. perishing yeah. They didn't have you know the common medicine that we have right now, uh, which alleviates pain for millions of people that would otherwise be in incredible pain uh, during the time of their death. But they did uh, have certain drugs, and they had, obviously, wine mixed with myrrh in this case. But it's interesting that Jesus declined it. And I personally believe, and I believe you're probably the same persuasion, Chad, that he declined it because he wanted to have a clear mind. He wanted to be sober-minded when he was on the cross. He wanted to uh, die for us. Now, he wouldn't have broken the moral law because it was allowed in Proverbs 31 as a as a pain reliever, a sedative sort when of you're dying, yeah. we're forbidden as Christians to get drunk. Amen. Jesus never walked around as a drunk man. Okay, we Amen. know that because he would have broken God's moral law, uh, contrary to what some people want to uh, use. Oh, he turned wine and you know water into wine at, at the wedding of Cana. Therefore, you know, well, the Bible warns also it's considered a sin to get somebody else drunk. Yeah, you know, Habakkuk so, two fifteen. Yeah, yeah, Habakkuk two fifteen. That's right, Chad. And uh, uh, so we know he wasn't getting people drunk. And there's we can. We'll probably have to do some shows, and we'd love to do that, showing the wine content of alcohol mixed with water back then to kill bacteria and how being drunk was forbidden among not not Jesus and his disciples, but many of the branches of uh, Judaism at that time uh, forbade drunkenness. And there's even to this day, there's a very low rate of uh, drunkenness and alcoholism among many of the Jews in Israel because it hasn't been part of their culture for years to just get, now, of course, a lot of Jews like Gentiles who get drunk, and there's warnings against that because that happens, but uh, the culture, culturally was influenced by the scripture, which is interesting. So he was in, he had the right to take a painkiller, but praise God, he wanted to, while well, he died for the, our sins and the sins of the world, and he was going to utter these seven sayings from the cross, he didn't want to be inebriated. And so he rejected uh, the wine that was offered him, which I think is fascinating. But also, but later on, later on, he actually requests a drink. But it's important to understand the context because now we're talking about a jug of sour wine, which was used to drink by many, most commentators agree, the soldiers, and uh, which the soldiers weren't allowed to get drunk, the Roman soldiers on duty, you know, and they were probably chugging it enough to where they're not thirsty, doing hard work, hammering nails into our Lord's hands and so forth. Uh, so it probably didn't have much alcohol content. Uh, so I'll say this, is that uh, in that regard, it happens right before he dies. So even if there was a alcohol content to it, let's say for the sake of argument, there was, it wouldn't have affected his, right. his mind. In fact, let's read this, the text. It says in John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30, 
Uh, once he was hanging on the cross, Jesus did drink. After this, uh, we read, I, the scripture actually says, uh, Jesus, knowing that all was not now finished, said, and he said this to fill the scriptures, it says, I thirst. So he's fulfilling the scriptures, I thirst. Now, what in the world? Where does it say he's going to say, I thirst? And this is just kind of interesting. He says this to fulfill the scriptures. So when he's hanging, being crucified on the cross, uh, he does take a drink. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of, of, of wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So this is right before he dies. And it's interesting, it's a sponge that's dipped into this jar. It's not guzzled. It's not even a, a drink that's poured in his mouth. So if a sponge is being brought up to you and you take some of it, it's going to be a very small amount. Yeah. But how does this? How in the world does this fulfill Scripture? You know. So it's interesting. He's not only drinking a minute amount of wine here, which is obviously cannot contradict how people understand on a surface level Luke twenty two that you just read, because he's actually fulfilling other Scripture, which he knew he he said it to fulfill Scripture. So he knew he would do this when he said what he said in Luke twenty two. Mm-hmm. So obviously Jesus has something in mind here, and we need to think about well, what's going on here? Well, uh, in Luke chapter. Well, I think this is important. When he says, I thirst, it causes them, they take hyssop and they attach this, this sponge to it and they bring it to his mouth. They reach up and give him a little bit of wine, wine vinegar. And it's interesting, in some, will, some translations or some will state it's, it's vinegar, but uh, vinegar turns into wine. So, But it's interesting, when he does take this drink and he says, I thirst, and they give it to him to fulfill Scripture. What's he doing? What's he fulfilling? I find it fascinating. We know uh, from the Gospel of John, it's kind of interesting because right here we're quoting the Gospel of John, that John totally sees him as the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb. I mean, John one twenty nine from the get-go, uh, we read, John the Baptist says, you know, behold the, the lamb of God. God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is only recorded in the Gospel of John. And John is the one who tells us that uh, not one bone, one of his bones was broken. In other words, when they came to break his legs, John says he was already dead, you know, because he'd lost so much blood, right? And when they came to break his bones, guess what, man? He's, he's, he's dead. And John says this was to fulfill the scripture, not one of his bones will be broken. Now, John is one that points out to us that this was actually on the day of the Passover. And we know that from the other scriptures as well. John, the, or the Apostle Paul says, Christ our Passover was crucified for us. Uh, we look at the other Gospels and we see that there was a mini Passover, or there was a Passover Seder that Jesus had with his disciples the day before. John actually tells us that he was crucified on Passover Day. We don't have time to get into it now, but the Galileans, from the evidence that we have, celebrated the Passover Day a different day than those in Judah. So you could see two different Passover days being celebrated by two different groups of people. But I think it's really fascinating when he does this because John sees him, he says that the scripture might be filled fulfilled, not one of his bones was broken. Well, the Lord says not to break any of the bones of the Passover lamb. And now it's Passover day. And now the ultimate Passover lamb is being crucified on that very day. And what would they do with the blood of the Passover? When they would kill the Passover lambs in the very first Passover in Egypt, so their firstborn would not be killed, but the death angel would fly over the house and see the blood on the lentil, okay? That would be taken from the basin, put on the lentil, and put up and put on the doorpost, they would see 
blood in the form of a cross, and it would pass over, right? Well, that hyssop, that blood came from their Passover lambs and was put up onto the door to paint a cross, which was a picture of what Jesus would do in the future. It says all the congregation would kill it. Woo, man, we have all of Israel. Crucify him, crucify him. And it had to be unblemished, male. Jesus unblemished, male. For five days, he had to inspect that lamb, make sure there was no blemishes in that lamb before they were to kill their Passover lambs and apply the blood. We see that Jesus went into Jerusalem and for five days, they tried to find sin in him. And he, he could find no sin, Pilate says. Just this beautiful picture, right? So what's interesting is Jesus is the Passover lamb. They're not bringing blood to him with hyssop. When they bring that sponge up to him, they're with hyssop. They're bringing blood back down from the ultimate lamb of God from the cross, because he's, he's bludgeoned beyond recognition, the scriptures say. He, he, he couldn't recognize him, it says in Isaiah 53. So his face is a bloody mess. That's the reason he was incredibly thirsty. And anybody be crucified is going to be really thirsty. You lose a lot of blood, get flogged, crucified. So there's all kinds of blood on this sponge and on this hyssop that's brought back down to humanity. And it's just a beautiful fulfillment of that picture. And then we see in, what is it, Psalm 51, David fell into adultery and even murder. And then he's like, cleanse me with hyssop. hyssop you know, yeah. it's just a beautiful picture all the way through. But there's more going on there as well. Because can you imagine if you were just one of those two thieves having lost all the blood that they'd lost, they'd be incredibly thirsty. And he had lost blood in Gethsemane. He'd lost blood when they beat him. And they beat him more than the other than the thieves because they were try- Pilate was trying to make him a bloody mess because he knew he was innocent, and he wanted them to say, okay, he's had enough, let him go, let's, let's crucify Barabbas. But they're, no, crucify him. So he's a bloody mess when he goes to the cross. Crown of thorns, hit in the face over and over again with a, uh, a uh, bag put over his face. Prophesied, tell us who did it. He has lost so much blood, uh, which is, shows you what kind of shape he was in, because and carrying the cross and then being nailed to the cross, uh, he is incredibly thirsty. And... He doesn't say, it says it real quick, I thirst. And I believe in his humanity, he, he was an incredible thirst. And, I, and his throat was probably incredibly dry. His mouth was incredibly parched. He could barely talk. So he says, I thirst. And I believe also, probably what may be going through his mind, I lean toward this too, is he wants to declare, to tell us die loud and clear. You know, and he's also got a couple more statements to make. So as soon as he takes this liquid, he fulfills prophecy and he takes just enough to be able to exclaim, you know, Tetelestai! And I don't believe he said Tetelestai. Tetelestai, it's finished. Oh, man. He, I'm, he, he probably is, Tetelestai, it is finished! You know, he cried out. And, uh, and then he also went on to say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He said this so people could hear. So I believe there's reasons. And it happened right before, let's say there was some alcohol in it. Uh, I don't debate against that. I just say, you know what? It was right before, because then right after this, he says, it is finished. Tell us, die. Then it says, Father, in your hands, I commit my spirit. And then he bowed his head, breathed his last. So it would have no mental. And I know that wasn't even really the question, but I think it's just interesting want to address that. But uh, let's get more into the question as far as, is there a contradiction there? I don't believe there is, because keep in mind, he says to them, which I think is fascinating, that he won't drink again with them until he does in the Father's kingdom. And when we read in Luke chapter uh, 22, okay, I think this is an interesting text. He says, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What people don't recognize is 
What's he talking about? What's he not going to drink until the kingdom of God? Is he specifically talking about a drop of wine? Which I don't believe is what he's talking about at all there. In fact, he says he won't drink again with them until he does in the Father's kingdom. And we know the kingdom comes when Jesus comes back. You know, spiritually, the church is part of the kingdom of God. We've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, Colossians 1, 11 through 13. And uh, at the same time, the physical kingdom and Jesus inaugurating the kingdom of God on earth takes place when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And when the Lord Jesus returns, uh, says in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, that when the seventh angel sounds, uh, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of Christ and he will reign and so forth. And we know in Revelation chapter 19, when he comes back uh, with the, the armies of heaven, it says right before that, the bride has made herself ready. Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9. Verse 11, he comes back. And guess what? His bride is made ready. Now he goes, he, he inaugurates the kingdom and we reign with him now for a thousand years. And guess what? It says in Isaiah 55 and 56, the mini apocalypse, and it talks about how the kingdom will come on the earth. That's when the wedding feast will take place at his second coming on the earth. And that's where the scriptures put it. They don't put it in the pre-trib rapture seven years earlier. And then it says he'll break out, you know, the aged wine, you know, he'll break out. Uh, so it's like interesting. It's at the wedding feast that we'll finally be able to uh, drink with him and fellowship with him. And so he's saying, hey, I'm not going to be drinking this wine with you again until the kingdom comes. And that's, ex and that's exactly, so also keep in mind, there's four cups. So at a, at a Passover Seder. And some believe, well, he just didn't do hardly anything at the Seder. They just had a little bread, a little wine. No, it says Jesus, if you look at the counts, it says he ate. They were eating. They were having a meal together. So they're having a Passover meal. And uh, they drank the first two cups. And when they came to the third cup, the cup of redemption, which he said represented his blood, it says he didn't take it. He passed it to the disciples. Well, why would he pass it to the disciples? Because the blood was shed for them. And we partake in it. Him. It wasn't shed for himself, right? And then the fourth cup, which is called the cup of thanksgiving and the cup of, thanks, of consecration, uh, we don't read about them taking that cup and we read, or him taking that cup. And he says, I won't drink this cup with you until I do in the Father's kingdom. That will be the time when there's incredible thanksgiving. And this fits with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six: For as often as you eat and, uh, the bread, this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we continue to do that as a reminder. It's so important to, to do communion, brothers and sisters. Uh, and if you're looking for a fellowship and haven't found one yet, I encourage you just get some unleavened bread and, to, and, and break some bread with some brothers and sisters. Or if you buy your lonesome, you know, uh, a little bit of grape juice and just do this in remembrance of him because Peter warns that we get to the point where we forget that we've been saved from or cleansed from our past sins. And we're supposed to make sure we're doing this. Uh, and I think it's important to understand this until he comes. Well, what changes when he comes? Well, when he comes, we're taking the pictures. We're, we're looking at the, there's pictures and types that look back, or look up to Jesus. There's pictures that look back at what he did. When we partake of it, we're looking back and forward. He's, here's what he did, but he's coming. But guess what? When he comes, we don't need the, to take communion anymore because guess what? We don't need to look at that matzah and say, wow, there's holes in this matzah. He was pierced. It's striped. He was, by his stripes were healed. Wow, it's, you know, it's pierced, it's striped, it's bruised. And that's what matzah looks like without leaven. He, he's bruised for iniquity. He was by his stripes were healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. Yet there's no leaven in it. It's, he's without sin. So it's a great picture of him. And the cup's a picture of his shed blood. So what's amazing about this is when he comes back, we know what he'll look like. We don't know exactly what he'll look like because the Bible says, you know, we, we'll see him as he is and we'll really see him in his glory for the first time. 
So we don't exactly know what it looked like. We have an idea, though. We know that he looks as one who had been slain. Because in Revelation 5, when nobody could take the, the scroll out of the hand of the Father uh, to unloose the seals uh, to, so God can bring his judgments and bring his kingdom in, Jesus stands up, takes it from the right hand of the Father. And John says, I saw one who was as slain, standing as if slain, you know? So when he saw him, he's still contrary to the Jehovah's Witnesses, what a lot of the cults teach, what a lot of liberal theologians teach. Jesus is still in his resurrected, glorified body. And he, John says, I saw a lamb as though it had been slain. And also called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He also saw a picture of his glory, not in all of his glory, obviously. So uh, when we see him, he will bear the wounds that the scars that he bore when he appeared to the, the disciples. Hence, we don't have to take communion because we have the living, crucified, resurrected Christ before us just stealing our hearts away for eternity as to how much he loved us. I mean, it's mind-blowing when we think about uh, what that, that's going to be like to be in his presence, to just appreciate you know, what he's done for us is, is beyond words, right? So it's interesting to keep that in perspective but then when you go, listen carefully, and I'm quoting from Matthew chapter 26, verse 27. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave to them saying, drink from it, all of you. In verse 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And it's not many as opposed to all, it's many as opposed to few. Uh, uh, and he goes on to say, and even John Calvin who we're not followers of, admits that, you know, and he uses the term many there. So it's interesting. Uh, in verse 26, for this is my, the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 29, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine of what? This fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. He's talking about the, what they're drinking and the specific cup that they're drinking and the cup of thanksgiving, uh, or because uh, there's a cup of redemption, then there's a cup of thanksgiving. And he won't drink the cup of thanksgiving with them uh, uh, again until when? In fact, he doesn't even drink from the fourth cup until he does it with them in the Father's kingdom. So he specifically has a specific celebration in mind, moving from the celebration of the Passover to the celebration of the Feast of Booths when he comes and establishes kingdom. And that's when they were on their way to the kingdom and the booths, they were going to the promised land. And then we will be in the promised land with him and the Gentiles will be invited to go up to the millennial uh, reign of Christ up in uh, Jerusalem, which is kind of interesting because we can, I know a question we have coming up pretty soon is who, how do natural bodies get in the, uh, the millennial period, especially if you have a post-trip perspective, which has very clear biblical answers, which we'll get into. But, uh, he's fulfilling the feast. So he's talking about a, the cup of wine that's associated with the feast days, associated with the day of celebration. He's not talking about taking a drop or a few drops in his mouth to quench his thirst and to fulfill prophecy. He's talking about drinking this cup with you, you know, specifically has something in mind. So uh, if my wife says, hey, I'm not going to drink, you know, uh, uh, let's say she, we don't drink any alcohol at all, but let's say, uh, she drinks... Uh, Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper. I like yeah. Dr. Pepper. I just don't drink it much because it's so yeah, much sugar. Yeah, me too. Yeah. It is so good, though, I have to admit. I get like one a year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and then uh, she says, I'm not going to drink this uh, Dr. Pepper. She's got a big... I'm not going to get a cup of Dr. Pepper like this with you until we're at this restaurant again. 
okay, which she would never do. I don't think she ever drinks Dr. Pepper anyway. And I drink water, iced tea usually. And then uh, I say, okay. But then she's super parched. And there's, she takes a couple drops of Dr. Pepper to fulfill something that has to happen. I'm not going to say, oh, you lied. No, I'm going to say that's totally out of the context in which she said it. And Jesus gives a specific context in which he declares this. But I love looking at these things because they shed so much light on the bigger picture where these supposed discrepancies fall by the wayside to be absolute zeros in the context of the bigger picture of what he's fulfilling. So Jesus did not even contradict himself because uh, he is not drinking of the cup of the wine that he was talking about, with which he said he would not do again with them until the Father's kingdom. Yeah, I think, I mean, in all honesty, I think that kind of clears it up. Now, is there, do you see any difference also, uh, you know, I'm kind of just throwing this more off the cuff, uh, the fact that typically when we see wine, it's typically in oinos, right? Uh, Yeah. When it it comes to, in the scriptures, and that, I mean, sometimes even in the Septuagint, I think you have oinos in a cluster, so it's not always specifically to uh, something that went through the process of actually becoming even alcoholic. Yeah, that's true. But nonetheless, you know, when we see that, and then we see, Specifically, it makes mention, and it, the only times I think you see the word, I could be wrong on that, um, but I think it's like six times, and it's all in that account. I think it's oxios is the word, and it's that's why you see it translated sour wine or mm-hmm. vinegar or, or so forth. And, I, and you know, you just got to wonder, you know, you're talking about the fruit of the vine, you're talking about yeah. something that would taste very good versus... Yeah. No, it's so totally not different. To not taste too good, you know, no, and I exactly. kind of wonder if that has... No, and I, and I absolutely wrong. believe it does because, you know, it emphasizes the sour wine. Many people believe it was just straight vinegar, you know, uh, and not at all what Jesus was taking. But my point is, I want to take the most, you know, give them as much ammo as they want and how they might interpret that and say, even if you look at it the way you want to present it and you want to empty the, us from the ideas that he may be drinking something totally different, it still uh, doesn't contradict what he was saying there because he was talking about, I'm not going to drink this cup with you again until, you know, and he's specifically talking about a specific cup uh, there. Not that he wouldn't have a drop of wine to, uh, or a few drops, whatever it was. You know, if, if somebody's, dip, you know, you need to say one last thing and you want to get blood on that hyssop, and you, that's your way to get it up there. And at the same time, you'll get some, uh, we don't even know, you know, we don't even know that he, uh, you know, we don't, we know he didn't guzzle it, but he could have just simply parched his mouth, you know? We don't yeah. even know if he actually, was you know drank a drop down his that was you know throat, but even if he did, it doesn't matter because that's that wasn't the promise that he had made, you know. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things. And whenever you come across these apparent contradictions, you know, one of the things, and this is a saying, you know, we've used a lot here, not to trade those things which you don't yet understand for the things you've come to know that are clearly true, you know, and there's a million different ways to say that. But I think that's one of the more important things is that when you're looking at these things, you're like, we have a resurrected Jesus, a Jesus who in Matthew 22, specifically when it talks about the word of God, he says these words that we read, he says very clearly that have you not read what was spoken to you by God, even though it was Moses who wrote the words, but ultimately holding us accountable to his word and how true it is to the point of even in that instance, speaking of I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, using uh, the the tense of a verb to prove his point, we can recognize that the word of God by our resurrected king is always true. 
you know. Absolutely, 100, 100%. So I think it, it's important for us to, to grasp that. And then when we're looking at these contradictions, we recognize where we're coming from, from that perspective. Alleged contradictions, yeah. Alleged contradictions. And that's what they are, they're, they're, or apparent even. Discrepancies. They're, you know, and one of the great things, you know, and I think guys like Jay Warren Wallace, which you, you can hear on the Good Fight Radio Network and, and others, and obviously you've done, done this as well for a number of years, point out so often when you read these quote-unquote contradictions, they are very easily explained. Yeah. I mean, really easily explained, especially when they're understood in the proper context of a biography. Yeah, you know, in terms of how they're yeah. written. it's also true with a lot of the or messianic prophecies. If you just some are looking for some wooden literal statements, and there's many of them, like Isaiah 53 is just mind blowing, right? But uh, when you don't understand typology, you know, you're like, you know, how, how does and you don't understand how God uses typology? A lot of it's going to go right over your head, and that's what the Book of Hebrews taught, calls meat. Everybody wants to get into Melchizedek, but he says I can't even talk about Melchizedek the way I want to to you guys because you're still on milk and you ought to be on meat and teachers by now. So it's, the typology is more of the meat of the word. And he just, I, I, I can relate to him, you know. He's, he's like, oh, I wish I could share more, you know, uh, at certain points, you know, uh, because you want babies to grow and you want them to appreciate Jesus more and just fall in love with him more. So I think that's important that we recognize that there's a whole plethora of uh, ways to understand certain scriptures. So basically what you're saying, let's make sure that we get those elementary principles down so that we can be taken from the milk onto the meat and grow in Christ. And feed others as well. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.